loving loving Sairam, Dr. Pal Dal and Sister Tessin Dal, the Sri Satyasai Global Council West Indies lovingly welcomes you all to the program and series Awake, Unite and Inspire. We are truly privileged, honored and happy to have you all as our guests once again on this evening's program. I know that this is only happening through the divine grace and will of our beloved Mother Sai. So may I begin with Sister Tessine, if you, can, if you can share one of your most memorable experience that you've had with Mother Sai. Well, Sairam, everyone. Uh, there have been lots and lots of occasions where the way Swami interacted with me, uh, I could experience his motherly love in abundance. What comes to my mind is particularly the second interview. Uh, that was going back in 88. I was there with my daughter. The background of that is before going there, my husband, Paul, he was meditating on death. So Swami made sure that through his um, certain uh, experiences and some dreams, he was convinced that he was going to die within six months. So he organized his will and he did all that thinking that that's it, that's the end of uh, his life. I, with my daughter, happened to go to Prashanti and Swami graciously uh, granted an interview. Now, in the, as I got in the interview room, because um, my daughter and I, we were the first ones to enter in the room. So I, in my enthusiasm, went right in the front and um, next to his uh, footstool. And then after us, many other devotees came. Now, Swami was not there at the time. So he went in and came back. While he was standing uh, in the door from... Um, inner interview room and coming to the outer uh, interview room, stood there and he said to me, Banji, move. I didn't realize that uh, why he wants me to move. And then he said, it is Prashanti Nilayam. Banji, move. So at this stage, him calling me Bhanji was something I have never heard before or after. So I was in that bliss, but then I looked back and I was sitting on the men's side. So I felt very embarrassed and quickly trying to move on the lady's side. Before I settled down, he said, go to the inner uh, interview room. So I got up and um, 
uh, our daughter Shama also got up. So I, I went in and as soon as uh, uh, Shama was going to enter, Swami said to her, and where do you think you are going? And she said, my, because she was 10 years old, my mom, my mom, she just got in. The Swami really played a little with her, with her emotions, and then let her come in. And then Swami sat on the chair. As soon as Swami sat on the chair, I really started to tell him what's going on with Paz. I said, I blamed him. You are giving him bad dreams, and he thinks he's going to die. He's going to die within the next six months. And I went on and on and on. And by this time, Swami had enough, and he said, no, 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 he's not going to die. And then he said, um, I will uh, give you a lingam for him. Anyway, after that, what he did, he just waved his hand and a pendant started to appear from his palm. Uh, first the pendant dropped and then the chain and then he just held it like that long enough. And uh, Shama and I, we just went, <gasps> like that. And she said, shh, shh, shh. people are sitting outside. So that was uh, quite an experience to be watching him creating the uh, pendant. And at that time, we also had number of pictures, some big pictures, full size, and some small ones. And uh, rolled and in a pillowcase. So he asked us, and what is that? So said, Baba, they are uh, your pictures. Oh, you like Sai Baba's pictures. And then he said, I will sign them outside. And after that, he started to talk a little bit more and then got us outside in the main interview room. There sat down and uh, he initially created the Vabhuti for the ladies and talked with the few devotees. And after that, he created the Lingam for Pal. And before he gave the lingam, he just made this comment. Her husband is afraid of dying. He thinks he's going to die. And, uh, you know, there was a bit of uh, laughter in the interview room because he, the kind of comments he made. And then the lingam, and he gave me the lingam. And after that, he asked me to put all the, you know, roll of the pictures on his lap and uh, indicated that open one by one. It was quite an experience to be watching him, my unrolling the pictures and signing one after the other, the six pictures. And Couple of times, uh, the situation was such that he was standing amongst the flowers, bushes, and he went, went on asking me to unroll till there was a spot where his signatures could be seen. 
So that really gave plenty of time to uh, have that closeness and feel his immense love. Now that went on for a while. And after that, I was holding a slate in my hand for Baba to write home for our daughter. So to have that much love, it was incredible. And I was feeling overwhelmed with his love. So he asked me, give me the slate. And I said, no, 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 Baba, that's enough. That is enough. And then he asked me again, give me the slate. And I said, no, thank you. Thank you, Baba. I was feeling that there are other people in the interview room. So it would be good if he could uh, give his love and give his attention to them as well. But the third time, when he asked me, give me the slate. So I quickly gave him the slate. And then I was holding the chalk. And then he looked at me lovingly, but in a manner, give me the chalk now. So I handed over the chalk to him. And he wrote oh, beautifully. Then he looked at Shama and looked at myself and doubled the own. So that interview seemed really overwhelming. The amount of attention, his motherly love and the closeness and his reassurance that he's looking after us. Thank you. My God, that was absolutely beautiful. And with each sharing, you could have felt the love and compassion of this wonderful mother side, very, very beautifully, you know, displayed and shown, you know. It's amazing, the love of mother side, when he says he has the love of a thousand mothers. So, Dr. Dahl, I want to come to you now, sir. Why did you feel that you were going to die? And why do you, did you have a fear of death? at that time? Well, you know, <laughs> uh, before I came to Swami, I was very much into um, uh, Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, Tibetan Mahayana Buddhism. And in Mahayana uh, tradition, there are very uh, powerful meditations on death in order to overcome the mortal fear. Because one of our problems, if you like, in spiritual path is the fear of death and the fear of dying, the fear of loss, the fear of that helplessness at the point when we were dying. Right? Now, there are very strong and powerful meditations, and I was doing these meditations, and I was getting very, very powerful experiences of death and dying. Um, in, in the physical life, I could see as a, as a surgeon, you know, I'm accustomed to death, you know, patients dying. But what happened, at, I mean, I, there are many experiences related to death and dying, but the two that were outstanding was one, we were traveling on a clear day. We had come back from a funeral and we were driving on a clear afternoon. There was no rain, the roads were not slippery. It was a fine day. As we were coming to our little town, 
a car came from the opposite side, a four-wheel drive. In front of us was another little car with two women. And they were talking, and I could see from the rear window of their car that they were gesticulating and so on. They're Asian women, meaning they were Chinese-looking, maybe from Thailand or from Indonesia. And this car from the, we were we were third in the line. A car from the opposite side, a big four-wheel drive, veered across the road. And what happened? The car number two immediately overtook the first car. So we were second in the line. And this four-wheel drive went on, hit the other car so powerfully that it actually went over the top of the other car. Right? And pushed it against an embankment. I immediately got, I stopped and I immediately got out of the car. And I could not get into that other car because I wanted to get these two women out. And I was the only person on the scene with the scene. And I could not do that. Um, all I could do was through a broken window, hold the hand of one young woman who was sitting in the, in the, in the passenger seat. That's all I could access. Hold her pulse and actually feel her pulse as she was dying. See, that was one experience. The utter helplessness in face of death. And the second experience was a man came to our home uninvited on a Sunday morning, <laughs> came to our home and as usual, we offered hospitality. We did not know him. He said that he had hired from our tenant a space in our commercial building. So he was in a way like a tenant, but we didn't know. He knocked on the door, we brought him in. He was an Indian or Pakistani, I think Bangladesh. Bangladesh. He was a Bangladeshi. So he came in, we offered him tea and coffee and you know, little tidbits to eat. And he sat down feeling very comfortable. And he said that I'm a palmist, I can read palms, right? So for some reason, uh, he said, show me a palm. So he looked at my palm and he said, oh, um, very short life, he said. <laughs> said, in the next few weeks, you're going to have a fatal accident. So I said, okay. But then he said, but God can overcome that. You know, it's not beyond the power of God to overcome death. Now, these are the two real experiences, physical experiences I had, in addition to a lot of meditative experiences and dreams about death and dying. So I was quite convinced that Swami had actually come in my dreams to tell me that, you know, my karma is over. He said, my karma is over. The dream was this, in the many several dreams about death and dying, but this one was very powerful because here was Swami, Tessin and our daughter and son were in the line, and he comes up and they do Pad Namaskar. When I wanted to do Pad Namaskar, he says, no, no, you stop. So I, I looked at him and he said, your karma is over. Right? So that was a very powerful dream. The other dream was 
I mean, I can, I can go and share it. <laughs> yes, right? yes. But the, the thing is, the reality of death was there. Mm -hmm. I, I was meditating to trying and overcoming the, the mortal fear, which is in our, built in ourselves, in our, our DNA. Um, and the experiences it gave me both in real life and through dreams and through meditation, what of death and dying and what it is like. So when I shared with Tessin, I said, you know, maybe my, and, and, and Swami had given that very indication in the dream. So I was writing my will and saying, well, you know, my, my life is over. And then she went. That is going back in 88. Right. And she claimed it back. And she came with a shivlingam and she said, you have to have the water. Swami instructed her to have the water every day. And I don't know whether, in fact, my life was reclaimed. I really don't know. But certainly I had a good fight with him. It re reminded me of the story of uh, Satyavan Savitri, who uh, fought with the, with the god of death and reclaimed her husband. So I think this is such an amazing, amazing, mind-boggling experience. Because Swami in the dream told you that your karma was over. Here's a palmist that is predicting you will die in a few weeks. And... Um, how did that make you feel preparing for death? In other words, you had advanced knowledge. Yes. Not only that, I have to share this, another experience which was beautiful about death. And that was that I was lying down on the ground with a light near my head, dying. Right? And Swami comes up, like on a war draft. Swami comes up, looks at me, and he says, don't be afraid. I'm sending you to an air-conditioned place. <laughs> <laughs> so then he looks up at me you know I'm lying down and he's standing with, with some people and he says well you have a choice because if you don't like to go to the air conditioned place I can send somebody else <laughs> now your question is how did I feel well obviously I think when when uh, you know that, when one knows that one's life is over, and I had a young family at the time, I was naturally concerned not just about myself, but also about Tessin and the children and their future. Right? So there are a number of uh, considerations when you're facing death, when anybody is facing death. Is my role in life over? What are my duties? How will they be met afterwards? You know, there's a lot of thinking that goes on along those lines. It's not just the fear. It's also the aspect of planning and the aspect of acceptance. You know, the, if we can feel love and trust and acceptance of death, then I think if we are comfortable with that, to me, that that's a very important aspect of dying. And I've seen patients who are afraid of death, and I've seen patients who are comfortable with the idea of death. And, and the two deaths are very different. You see, Swami in his own life showed what a conscious death is. You know, through the, uh, through the death of 
Subama. Right? He recalled her and she was in that God consciousness. And he called her from a corpse. He revived her to give her that final benefic benefic beneficence that I will be there with yeah, you. Yes, she had died. She had died. She, three, three days. Two or three yeah. days. But the, 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 the whole Buddhist teaching on four meditation is called, is to be able to experience the light as you are dying, to remain conscious of divinity as you are dying, and as your mind is disintegrating, your body is disintegrating, it's going back into elements. To be conscious of that, I think is a, is a key to real spirituality. Because the, even all the research that has been done on de uh, death and dying by Kubler-Ross and others. And my mother had an experience when I was born of dying. And she had shared this with us a long time before Kubler-Ross described the divine light that appears as, as people are dying. And that if one is conscious, one can embrace that light and, and not be afraid of it. But I think when, when the karmic um, load is heavy, then we die a fearful death rather than a brave death, rather than a conscious death. Anyway, that's, um, <laughs> Long that's another subject. It's far away from education. <laughs> well, it is an education of life. <laughs> it's, it's, yes. But take a, take a brief few moments, uh, Dr. Dahl, in your profession. You have seen people dying at their last breath, they're dying out of fear, and there are some who are embracing. So what is the, how have you observed the experience of the person dying out of fear? How do they behave? Well, the majority, you see, our hospitals don't enable people to be conscious at the time of dying. They don't enable that. Because what they do is to fill them up with sedatives and so on and make it comfortable exit. But spiritual way of dying is not to be comfortable like that, to be, to be clouded in your mind. The spiritual way of dying is to be conscious of your death. But to use that experience to embrace the light, to embrace the, the divine love that comes also at the time. I mean, in Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna has described that too. Uh, but I think that from my life of experience as a medical professional, I have seen a variety of deaths. And the majority of people are not given the chance to die consciously. The majority of people are dying in a clouded mind, in a mind that is not clear. Yeah, because of our worldly attachments, it's very hard to leave everything behind, your loved ones, your wealth, and the rest of it. It's uh, uh, quite, it could be quite challenging if one is not prepared for it. No, but also in the process of dying, you know, your different senses disappear at different time intervals, according to the where they have originated from the five elements. So that you can continue to hear, for example, uh, a long time after you uh, you feel to see or, or to taste, right? So you continue to hear. And I think that, you know, saying prayers, people surrounding um, a dying person with prayers and so on, 
you know, there is the Tibetan Book of Dead, which explains the whole process of dying in a very, very measured and scientific way. Uh, and that is how to be able to go into these, what they call bardo states, states of consciousness, which are different from the consciousness, which is living consciousness, like we are interacting at, at one level. But there is a higher consciousness that we go through in our meditation. Similarly, when the body is disintegrating, when the senses are disintegrating, the mind has to be very, very clear. And this is the reason that if we can concentrate, we can retain our conscious connection with the divine, then we can embrace the light that appears in the process of dying. And, and, and that is ultimate salvation. Because we all have to die. There is no exit other than that. But how do we face that? As a, as a terror-stricken um, person who is still attached to body and to family and to possessions, or are we generous? Or do we have that faith in the ultimate beauty and the ultimate love of God that we can trust everything to, to God, to divinity, and, and let, let divinity take care of us? you know, to embrace the light. So, we didn't plan to discuss all this aspect. <laughs> but, in, you know, when the interview begins, Swami is the divine orchestrator. So he knows what is to be discussed and when and how long. But this is a very, very interesting uh, discussion. And I gather from what you're saying, uh, Dr. Dahl, that the more we identify that I am the body, I am the mind, I am the intellect, the more we get attached to that ego and attachment to the body consciousness, the fear of death will arise. But once yes. you dwell more into the Atma, which is the core of who you are, which, which never dies, which never takes birth, which lives forever, the more you dwell in that God conscious state, the less of the body consciousness is there and the less that there is that fear of death. I, I think that that is very, very true. But what our practices, spiritual practices, do not focus on and our culture does not accept, I'm talking about the Western culture particularly, the hospital system does not accept death easily. They put people to intensive care and, and on to this very, very extended dying process. They don't enable people to die consciously. Whereas when you see what Swami did with, you know, in this program, Satya to Sai, I think episode three or episode two has got in it the, the death of Subama. I think that that is a lesson in itself. It's a beautiful lesson on how we should be dying elegantly. You know, not out of fear, but out of connection. And, and we seek a higher plane of consciousness through our process of dying. Hmm. And, and uh, Dr. Dahl, you know, I, I recall that very beautiful incident in Swami's life. And she had made Swami promise her that at the moment of death, he would be there at her side. But Swami was not physically there. 
And so he had gone to some place, but came back to fulfill the promise of Subama and then blessed her, as you said, with his darshan. So very, very beautiful. No more beautiful a death is that that she had with our beloved Lord at her side. But the ultimate thing, yes, you, you are absolutely spot on, you know, that is, but the ultimate words that she uttered to Swami was, send me where you want me to go. Mm. Send me where you want me to go. The ultimate trust. Yeah, that's, that is beautiful. And complete surrender to the Lord. Total. Amazing. So, Dr. Dal, share now one of your experiences. I know from the part one of your first interview, there has been so much of demand for you to also continue to share. So, if you can share one additional beautiful memory that you've had with Swami, we would be very happy. I don't know whether I shared this with you the last time, but a very powerful uh, aspect of Cosmic Psy was revealed to me and to the audience very early on when we started the Institute of Satya Sai Education and Human Values in Canberra. The very first education retreat we had was in Canberra. And that was in a motel. There were about 85 participants from my memory. And it was a large room. There, it was a two-day event. At the very concluding, at the very conclusion of this two-day event, I was giving a closing address. And pictures were being taken. The energy level at that time was incredible. Absolutely incredible. A very high energy, beautiful uh, conference, people very motivated. Uh, Swami was, you know, at that time giving diplomas. He was blessing. He was actually physically giving people their diploma certificates. And when one picture was taken, as I was giving the closing address, in the picture, Swami was standing behind me. That, that was an amazing experience too. It was not captured by human eye, but it was captured by the camera. At a human level, at a human level, we could experience it as as tremendous energy in the room. But at the camera level, what, what can I say? Yeah, what just I realized that is uh, interesting that he gave me the experience, physical interactions, a lot of them. While Paul with you. He has given you his cosmic yes. uh, experiences. Yes. So between the two of us, we are all right. <laughs> <laughs> I love his form as well. 
but I think to me his cosmic aspect, his homelessness, is is more exciting. Uh, not more exciting, but is equally exciting. Uh, now that we can't relate with him at a physical level, uh, I find that his formless aspect, his his consciousness, is what I find very beautiful. The relationship with that is 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 magnificent, and it is timeless, is eternal. Yeah, I must add that I I love going back in time, and uh, feeling that closeness with him. So I, I cherish those moments. No, I, I do too. <laughs> I do too. Uh, I cherish those moments. But I think in my daily practice, in my daily, I go back to Sri Krishna's explanation of what divinity is. Uh, in I think it's in one of the chapters, I can't tell you the chapter, but he says, I am the light in the sun and the moon. I am the fragrance of the earth. I am the valor of the brave. Uh, I am the, um, the fluidity of water. I mean, that to me is the essence. To be able to see divinity in the fragrance of a rose or in, in, the, in the, in you know, one poet said to see the, the universe in a grain of sand mm. and, and to experience the eternal in a moment. Now that is divinity. It's that formless aspect of the divinity is takes a, a physical form in the form of clouds or leaves or plants or seeds or fruit or people or animals. And to be able to relate with that at the level of the heart, not the mind, but the level of the heart. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's divine manifestation of Mother Sai. So beautifully said. Uh... So very poetic, you have expressed it, Dr. Dal. As it's, Swami said, yes, please go ahead. No, no, I was just saying that, you know, sometimes we have conflict in certain religions between formless and form. Whereas the deepest teachings of the, the Vedas, the deepest teachings of all religions, is that Divinity is beyond our imagination, beyond our thoughts, beyond our feelings. It's, you know, reading Shirdi Sai recently. Shirdi Sai was able to correct a, a devotee who was reciting Bhagavad Gita. And he reinterpreted the same shloka. Shirdi Sai reinterpreted the same shloka to say that all the teachings, that we can experience are actually about ignorance. Because ultimately, God is beyond our thoughts. Ultimately, we have to surrender to that higher being which is beyond thoughts, beyond mind, beyond emotions. Now, Nirvikalpa Samadhi is Samadhi beyond form. Savikalpa Samadhi, yes, there is a form and a relationship. But the ultimate is formless, beyond thoughts, which manifests as the universe. So we can look at the divine in the form, but we have to access, we have to reach the formless, which is love. Now, love is an abstract notion. It's the, what Swami calls the oneness principle. 
the love that is unconditional, which is equally given to a worm and to a human being, which is given equally to a plant and to animals and to human life. That love, that is what divinity is. You know, I, I, I must say that I look at the creation and I'm filled with awe. How in a tiny insect, you know, we can create a car which has got fuel and which has got, but still does not multiply itself. But here in a very tiny insect, we makes the possibility of not only flight, but of emotions, of being able to reproduce, to develop from a tiny cell into a whole being. You know, I, I take a look at the development of human mind, human heart, human body in the uterus from one cell, one single cell that makes the brain. I think in, 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 in the Holy Quran, it says that. You know, I've created this from, from a piece of flesh. You know, the, the, the amazing from the power fluid. of fluid. From fluid. Mm. The amazing power. How in a seed we have a forest. How in a little pip, orange pip, we have all the tastes, all the colors, all the capacity of being able to convert soil into fruit. And that's bigger miracle than anything else how we can eat dal and rice and convert it into our thoughts and, and devotion. That to me is amazing miracle. I can't overcome the awe that I have for, for these what look like banal, you know, banal everyday experiences. But they are divine experiences. We can see the divinity in this. I can anyway. I relate to the divinity <laughs> at that level. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I look at you and I look at Yasmin and I look at the structure of the truth, the perfection of the truth, the, the, the perfection in the eye, in the human eye, or in any eye. The beauty of it, the, the amazing complexity, and yet amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm taken with awe for that. <laughs> yes. Beautiful miracles of Swami. They're right around us in the air that we breathe, as you said, the flowers that grow, the beautiful waters, the ocean, the human body, things that are free that you don't even have to purchase. They're available to mankind free. And in that is the manifestation of divinity. Yeah. You, you look at, I'm sure uh, West Indies is the same as, as Australia. Our atmosphere is very clear. You can lie outside at night and look at the universe in the skies yeah. and, and know that it is beyond our capacity to imagine how vast it is. You know, science looks upon all this as interlocking systems and reduces it in, in very basic terms to how we can utilize that in technological terms. But we don't relate with the beauty, the magnificence, the amazing immensity of it. We don't relate. And, and this reminds me where Swami says the, the C and the O. You know, all our knowledge and so on is a tiny fragment. Even now, quantum physics, we recognize that our, our sensory equipment is limited. Even in this space that I see, there are, there are other elements that are beyond my 
uh, my sensory equipment. That, in fact, the material world is only a fraction of the total universe. Only we can see a fraction of that. The, the universe is, is enormous. And, and what we regard as empty space is actually filled with energy. And the, the beauty of it, Dr. Pal, Dal, is that Swami says to experience that vastness of who you truly are, the journey is within, not without. <laughs> so I remember he says it is good to be born in the church, but don't die in it. So we must move from the ritual to the spiritual and expand the consciousness from seeing Krishna in the temple to experiencing Krishna consciousness everywhere. And to do that, the journey has to be within, diving deep within our hearts and connecting that divinity so you can experience divinity in its fullness. Yes. I remember the... Yes, please go ahead. Please. I remember the Sufi saying, I think we shared it the last time, where Jaludin Rumi said, we are not a drop in the ocean, we are the ocean in the drop. That's right. Yeah, that's like eternity in a... In a, in a, in a yeah, or a, or a universe in a grain of sand, yes. Beautiful. So, Dr. Dahl, has it or was it challenging against your belief system and your background to believe in Satya Sai Baba as an avatar, as God in human form? I think coming from a Hindu background and being aware of um, the avatars, you know, Krishna avatar, Rama avatar in particular, that it was not alien to have the fury of an avatar in my mind. But somehow in my mind, the attachment I had had since childhood, since my early induction into Krishna, that, you know, for me as a child, Krishna was a hero. He could do anything. He could destroy all these demons. Um, as a child, he could show the universe in the mouth. Uh, he could do anything. And he was such a hero and such a companion that almost um, he was a member of the family. Right? Um, then, because I come from a background, not just of Hindu teachings, but also of Sikh teachings, so Guru Nanak uh, was very important figure in our home. And his teachings emphasized formlessness. Both form, but also particularly formlessness. Now, having experienced the, having, having been inducted in that, and I think I shared with you that my journey uh, through England when I was educated, in, when I went to the university there, the challenge by the missionaries about my faith had made me look very deeply into Hindu philosophy, particularly the Upanishads. Coming to Swami was challenging, I must admit, because of the 
prejudices that I carried about what God should look like, what God should be like. This is a human construct. It is my construct created through the upbringing I had. Now, I understand that we have both the biology of transcendence and the biology of protection in our system, in our DNA. The biology of transcendence makes us empathetic so we can transcend our feelings and so on and rise and understand what is going on in an, another person's mind and heart. And biology of protection is what makes us rigid, what makes us limited. We don't want to go beyond the, the limitations that we have been brought up with. And because spirituality and religion carries such a emotional load which is tied with our identity, that we tend to become very limited in the way that we look at what God should be like. And I shared with you, in that interview that I had not the interview, then encounter I had with the man in the aircraft. And he said to me, oh, so you decide what God can and cannot do. Do you remember that? I shared that with you. I think that Given a mindset that is limited, and I think all mindsets are limited to start with, to go on to an expansion, to go on to a spiritual journey which enlarges from I to we, to he or she, to the universal, from the limited to the universal, requires us to break up our mental conditioning. Now, when I grew up, I was mentally conditioned in the form of Sri Krishna or Guru Nanak. I expected God to take that kind of form. But Sai Baba's form was different. And so initially I had a lot of conflict in my mind, even though he gave me fantastic experiences, phenomenal experience, which I had not had experience with Krishna form or with Guru Nanak form. And you know what happened? I was in Puttaparthi and I was having this internal conflict the very first time I went to Prashanti. And there used to be an elderly lady who the Australian people used to give her service. She lived in Prashanti. She lived in the ashram. So instead of going to Darshan, I went to her. And, and, and I said to her, I am having this tremendous... She was an elderly woman, very wise. She had been living in Prashanti for a long time. And so somehow I could trust her with my inner life. And I said to her, she, retired she was a retired medical man, a medical person. She, she was a medical woman who was also a, a, a judge, a retired judge. So I, I said to her, I am having this tremendous conflict. And you know what she said? She said, that's a very good thing. Because you need to really, really examine your belief system. And if your heart is not accepting, you have to work on that to see how you can enlarge yourself to accepting a form that is not your prejudiced notion. And I think that I had to work systematically on that, working on the divine consciousness and the magnificence of Swami's teachings. They are amazing teachings because they brought alive to me Bhagavad Gita and Upanishad and Holy Quran and 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 uh, you know our uh, Guru Nanak's teachings of the 
uh, you know, of the of all the ten gurus. So it was a gradual process. It was not an event. I can't say that I first went there and immediately recognized divinity. No, I did not. I had wonderful experiences, but I had to work on myself to see the divine consciousness that permeated and that that motivated Swami to take a form. And now I love that form. Yes, we all fell in love with that divine, compassionate form, that inconceivable form. So, Dr. Paldal and Sister Tessin, you all have shared such beautiful experiences and uh, memorable moments with Swami. And through his divine grace and will, you all have been very much involved in the propagation, cultivation and teaching of human values the core of which are his basic teachings, truth, right action, peace, love, and nonviolence, which really is the essence of spirituality. And what we have been speaking about, that when you awaken the inherent divinity within, it manifests in those five fundamental human values that then encourages, motivates, and inspires our thought, word, and deed. So, from that perspective, Swami has also said that educare is the Veda of the 21st century. In fact, he has said over and over again that the world will be transformed through the practicing of human values. He has also given how those values can be cultivated, nurtured and awakened in us through the Satyasai EHV program, the Educare program, the Community EHV program, and the parenting. So I wanted to spend a little time because I think this is the, the essence of Swami's teachings. And he has said 75% of his time was spent with the younger ones. So the components, the essential two components of character development in any child's life is the teacher and the parent. So first of all, where do the human values begin to be awakened and blossomed forth? How important are parents especially, because even before the child reaches the school, they spend a lot of time with the parents, especially the mother. How important is that role of proper parenting in character development of children? Okay, I think you have given a lot of the background. What I understand by Veda of the 21st century, educare, educare itself is a process. It is a process in which we approach life. It's, it's a process in which we look at everything because it is a pathway back to our divine origin. Educate has got three meanings. It is an educational tool. It is a process that takes us back to our origin. And also, it, it, it inducts character through the values. So there are three things in Educare. And I think we have to be very mindful of what we mean by educate when applied to parenting and to teachers and to schools and to systems. Okay. 
everybody in the world will have a mother and a father. And everybody in the world will have a teacher or teachers. The way in which our social system works, our family system works, our societies work, we have a home. And in the home, the mother is the, the as Swami says, the high priestess of the home. She sets a certain tone to the quality of care, to the quality of nurturance that will be available to the family. It's the divine feminine principle of love. Um, how important? It is absolutely vital. But you know, educare process doesn't start with the birth of the child. The educare process starts even before conception. How we are now, you see, epigenetic research shows that how I'm behaving myself will be conveyed into my germ, in, into my germinal system, into the sperm and into the ova. How a young woman and young man behave, what they believe will be conveyed in their germ cells. So when the gamete is formed, it is already there in the DNA. In other words, the character is conveyed through our, our system in reproduction. So when the zygote is formed, when, when the sperm and the ovum fuse together, they carry out the DNA of the two parents. And that DNA is determined according to their character. There are residues of character which will be conveyed. Now, Darwin didn't believe in this, or Darwin originally did, but the way in which Darwin was interpreted, evolutionary biologists ignored that, that aspect of it. In other words, what we are talking about is inheritance of acquired characteristics. We can acquire characteristics, we can acquire character traits, but these character traits are transmitted through our germ system into the new, newly formed baby and the way the baby will develop. And throughout conception, what the mother is exposed to, now there is a lot of research going on in the recent years to show that the stress in the mother will alter the brain structure and the heart of the child. The emotional capacity of the child will be altered according to the stress that the mother is exposed to. So research has been done, for example, in women who are pregnant at the time of 9-11 uh, and their character, character, you know, of fear at the time and how it has impacted, or when there is famine, or when there is war, how the child then develops, even after it has been exposed to good nurturing environment, will be influenced by the amount of stress that the mother has been exposed to during pregnancy. Now, then in the early child, because the forming brain will be limited in the way in which it will be constructed because of the stress hormones in the mother's blood. And then after birth, obviously, the way in which the child is raised, you know, what we call the attachment theory, how the mother behaves with the child and how the attachment happens. There are four different kinds of attachments that can happen. Nurturing attachment, uh, uncaring attachment, and so on, so on. So this attachment theory. This is main science. I'm not talking about spirituality. I'm talking about main science. 
that will determine the character of the child. The mother and father are architects of the family, um, of the family, not just in a physical way, but the family in a spiritual way, in an emotional way, in a social way. So they construct the entire um, co complex environment around the child in the way that they relate with each other and in the way they are exposed to stress and the way they conduct themselves with other people. All these are influences that are conveyed to the developing child and are taken up. The first seven years of the child, they are in a virtually trance state. Their EEG is that of a trance state, right? So they don't filter information so much, they just imbibe information. In the first two years, the child can learn. The child is a learning machine, amazing machine. You see, if you go into a new culture, how difficult it is to learn a new language. But a child learns a new language in two years. They have enormous capacity to learn, but now, all the impressions are going into the subconscious mind and also into the conscious mind. So the character of the child is developing at two levels in the subconscious mind and the conscious mind. When we talk about character development, we talk so easily, but we need to be aware that in the child, in, in the uterus, even before the child is mother becomes pregnant and afterwards, the way the parents conduct themselves is vital in the way the child will develop in their personality. Now, nature is amazing. Swami's consciousness is amazing. Because while there is this tremendous impact on the child in the first seven years, the brain continues to develop and parts of the brain continue to develop to the age of 25. The main opportunity is called now in the, in the scientific world, it's called the second window. The second window comes when the brain rewires for a second time during adolescence, from the age of around 12 to the, up to the age of 25 or 26. So there's a second opportunity to put in new information, new attitudes, new understandings, new behavior, new values. And that is the role of the teacher. So we have in the first seven years or five years or whatever you want to call that, that period where the child is not in a school system, the mother and father are vital, absolutely vital because they determine the physical structures in the brain and they determine the psychological capacities of the child. But then there's a second opportunity through educational system. So you see the, the role of the parents and the role of the teacher is complementary. The, the role of the parents doesn't stop at the time, but the, there are newer possibilities of being able to create a holistic human being through the educational system. So Swami's teachings are all embracing because he goes into what brahmachari is, how the, the parents should prepare for marriage, what they should look for in each other before they get married, how they, the, the, the couple should behave during a pregnancy, how they should behave or what they should be doing in the nurturing of the child in the early years. And then he hands over the responsibility to the educational system. 
the educational system must aim to produce a holistic human being who is, and as he says with the Balvikas, he says, what Balvikas is about is to develop the social conscience in the child. The social conscience is not just enabling people to relate at a human level because everything is social. Environment is also social. Newspaper is also social. Television is also social. Uh, the, the garden is also social, a social sphere. So educare is all embracing. Do we have the, do we relate with the five elements in a way that is transcendent? The way that is uh, meaningful in human terms of a higher value, right? So you've asked me a very important question. That's the role of the parents, the role of the teacher. It goes beyond, you know, just saying a triangle and they are there. It goes way beyond. It goes into development of the brain, the heart, the mind, the intellect, the personality. You know, so it's very vital. I think I, I can sum it up by, by saying it. Yeah. Yeah, that brings very well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You want to add something? No, no. Go ahead. <laughs> see, see, Dr. Nal, it, it brings me to some very important pertinent observations based on what you've said, that parenting starts even before the moment of conception, where there's preparation by the parents to start this process. So when also the mother in the nine month period that she carries the child, the mother's bloodstream is the child's bloodstream. So whatever the mother thinks, whatever the mother reads, whatever the mother interacts, whatever she eats will impact the fetus. And that is very critical and important. And then when the child takes birth, that very impressionable period where, where the child takes in so much like a blotting paper, it's very important what you feed the child physically, mentally, and spiritually because it forms the foundation of their life. So my question and observation is, sir, when we come to parenting, parents must be aware, they must be equipped with the knowledge and the know-how of how to bring high souls into the world. But when we look in our society today, Dr. Dahl, when children are being born out of drugs, out of alcohol, against a smoking background, Parents, children today are having children. Parents are not equipped. They don't have the knowledge and understanding. And then these children now are brought into the society. They become victims of the environment. So in terms of human values and transformation, how do we navigate such situations to bring forth human values in their lives? Okay, I think we have to take a look at the divine time as opposed to human time. You know, the, the divinity is eternal. There is the time scale for divinity and, and is, is eternity. But we are in a hurry because our lifespan is limited. We want immediate results. You know, this shows itself in instant pleasure, instant coffee, instant food, microwave and so on. We are accustomed to, you know, a time frame which is very narrow and very small. And we want transformation of the entire humanity to happen, you know, just in one giant leap one day. 
It won't happen that way. There are two ways that humanity is confronted with at present. One is to voluntarily understand what the purpose of this life is, what the purpose of being a parent is. The other one is being forced to recognize that. See, we are at a stage where we have got our back to the wall. The prediction is that humanity will wipe itself out as a species if we don't go in a different trajectory. We cannot continue on the current trajectory of the way in which we are going. The environment, the inequality, the injustice, the, the, the amount of suffering that is happening at present cannot continue. Because we'll make this, this planet uninhabitable for human species. Now when they say, oh, the planet will come to an end, the planet, planet will not come to an end. It will be the humanity that is wiped out. The human species. Now, I take a look at dinosaurs. The dinosaurs ruled this planet for 50 million years. 50 million years. Human beings came into existence from a um, genetic mutation 200,000 years ago. In the 200,000 years ago, we are facing actually our own extinction. Now, that's quite a thought. An ant has been on the planet for 5 million years and has not changed. Still adapted, still going as a species. But the human beings are faced with the possibility of an extinction through atomic weapons, through uh, climate change, through uh, wars, through fanaticism, whatever. That we can wipe ourselves. Now, we got the capacity of a group of relatively not even organized military, not even organized army, of being able to take on a nation like the United States with all the armament and actually defeat it. This is what has happened in Afghanistan. Now you can imagine that, that kind of fanatic group with atomic weapons in their hands. And that is a possibility. Right? So the predictions are, if you take a look at the Oxford School of Futures, there's a book written called The Meaning of the 21st Century. The prediction of the futurologist is that human beings face a very bleak future unless they go on to a different trajectory of growth. Economically, politically, socially, uh, in a sexually, in every way, we have to change. Our families have to change. Our societies have to change. Our, the way we consume things have to change. The way of the injustice of the poor and the rich, the inequality in the distribution of wealth. There, there are people with billions of dollars and yet a part of humanity is suffering for the lack of one dollar. They don't even have access to water and, and toilets. What kind of a world are we living in? Now, this is what Swami has come to correct or his teachings he has given are the, the, the educator of the 21st century the Vedas of the 21st century. Are we going to embrace that voluntarily? Or are we going to embrace it when we are faced with climate change that is going to eradicate, make half the world into arid deserts and flooded the rest? When are we going to wake up? Right? 
So we are facing a very bleak future for our grandchildren. We are stealing from our children and grandchildren in the way we live. We are stealing their future. This is not justice. This is not right conduct. So when we say human values in their depth dimension are something very different from, you know, just saying Satya Dharma Shanti Prema Himsa. They have to be practiced and they have to be understood in depth. And the parents and the teachers are the main instruments to bring this alive in the character of the children. So that there's a holistic development. So against the background of what you've just said, where do we begin to bring well, about said, transformation and awareness? Well, as I said, I think that we have to take a look at a, a human possibility. You know, we have to really revive our educational system and our parenting. That those two are the critical areas for the future. Every, every country in the world now is recognizing early childhood education is very important because that's the way in which the development is determined for the rest of the life of the child. And that determines the strength of the nation in economic terms, if nothing else. So I, I feel you say, where do we start? I think we can make a difference as we are activists. We become values activists becoming informed, but not overwhelmed with the challenge. And then becoming activists, making ourselves into change agents and bringing you know, an enlightened way of living into the society through our SSEHP programs. And then uh, Dr. Dahl, you know, against that background as well, where you speak about if there's no change or transformation of human consciousness, we are basically a doomed um, race. Well, and from that, from that perspective, uh, because a nation or an individual devoid of human values or spirituality really is a life that is not really worth living, it becomes meaning a meaningless existence. So then it, it connects now to the purpose of an avatar incarnating on the face of the earth. Swami says, I have come to ignite the spark of divine love in your hearts. I have come to show you the blessed way to Ananda. I do not want your devotion. I want your transformation. This avatar has promised that over a triple incarnation, he's going to make the world a better place, a more value-based place. And he's also showing us how it can be done through such as I education and human values, which begins, as you said, with the individual, the parents, the teachers, the community, and then the nation and the, the world at large. So he has also given us the, the chaotic state that we are in, but he's also given us the instrument by which we can become more divine, more loving, more value-based. And so it is up to us, as he has said, to take it and run with it or ignore it and face the consequences. So isn't that a tremendous light of hope yes. for a better future? That's a tremendous life of hope. That is the only life, the hope. The only hope we have is through radically transforming ourselves and becoming the instruments of change.
I mean, I'm talking about everyone, not just Sai devotees. I'm, I'm saying that there are very good people also outside of Sai organization. I can, I can say that, you know, who are also creating a, a consciousness. And, and sometimes very adver adverse events can create that consciousness. You, you know, the Black Lives Matter is creating a consciousness of equality and justice. Uh, and, and it was at the, at the price of a death of somebody, right? Uh, um, what's her name? Yusuf Zai Malala. Yeah. And, and this little child, what's her name? The Swedish girl. Um, yeah. she, they are raising the, the bar in terms of justice and equality and, you know, what what women should be allowed to do and what responsibility the culture has for the environment, protection of the environment, right? So uh, I feel that there are many, many levels of operation that are happening in the universe, in the, in the planet. And that is not just in the Sai organization, it's also in the larger, larger world, which are going towards a higher level of consciousness which are working towards inducing a higher level of consciousness. There are very good people who are working in that area, trying to bring in transformation in people, transformation in their attitudes. Even corporates, corporations are responding to that. You know, we're bringing more humanity into our, the way our, the corporate culture works. We're bringing in more humanity into the way the political systems work, yes? Right now, there's tension between China and, and America and Australia and, and China. But these tensions will result in something that is, you know, they say thesis and antithesis um, anti results in, 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 a, in, in a better outcome at the end. Right? So we are working at very many levels. But the challenge for the Sai organization is to be able to launch programs that are pertinent that are relevant and that are powerful by informed Sai devotees and other workers in, in that organization who are prepared to first transform themselves, understand Swami's message in depth, transform themselves and take it to the outside world. That is the process that he has given us. And I know Swami has also said that had it not been for the mind change of devotees, the world would have been in utter chaos. So through the Satyasai organization, there is an impact, there's a difference that is being made. And as you so rightly said, even outside of the organization, people are turning more towards realizing their true purpose and truly making a difference. And you, you saw that coming through with the pandemic that in spite of the, the debt, the pain, the economic disasters, there were nations and communities that came together to truly make a difference. Hotels preparing food, opening their doors for those who could not afford, you know, medical care being provided, nations coming together to support one another. There were beautiful examples of selfless service and communities across, you know, barriers of culture, race, creed, religion coming together to help people in need. So sometimes out of the calamity becomes, it becomes a blessing and an opportunity to serve. But Swami has said also in his triple incarnation, in the third incarnation, two thirds of the world will be in a state of unity and harmony. So as you said, 
you know, karmas are being worked out, things are being coughed up to be worked out. But in the end, as the avatars promise, the world is going to become a better place. I want to just one, say one thing, and, and that is important. We undertake SSEHV activities, the educational activities, not so much to transform others as to transform ourselves. Yes. You know, I think we have to understand that, that, from us. that is seva. <laughs> that we cultivate, cultivate uh, divine love in ourselves uh, and, and, and we share it with others. So I don't think, excuse me, excuse me. I think we have to um, become values activists for two ends. One is our own personal end also, that we become transformed. And in that process, we give insights to others and enable them to transform also. But it is not downloading on them, it is enabling the growth to happen organic growth to happen from within. So workshops have to be constructed in such a way that it, it is, they are basically educare. They are reflective. They make people think. They make people reflect and come to their own conclusions of what they can do. They draw it out from them. Draw it out. That is so beautifully said, uh, Dr. Paldal. I remember when I attended the first EHV conference in Prashanti, which was presided over by Swami in 1986. He said the best way to teach EHV is to live it. Yes. So we must become practitioners. We must be able to walk the talk, be the change, live the message. In fact, that's the most powerful way of transmuting human values and bringing about transformation because at the end of the day, you can't change anybody, but you can transform yourself. So it begins with each and every one of us, as the Christian hymn says, if there be peace in the world, let it begin with, with me. So, Dr. Pal Dahl, it has been an absolute pleasure, a joy, an honor together with you and Sister Tessin, sharing your perspective, your beautiful experiences and memories with Swami. I know that you are an extremely busy person with so much in demand. So thank you and thank Swami for both of you all taking the time to join with us. But as in a closing venture now, and you've alluded to it already, what can each one of us do? Okay, we've described the chaos in the world. We've described the inhumanity amongst uh, families, in the workplace, amongst nations. But what can each one of us do to contribute to make it so to become the change we want to see, the change in others. Just become that first. I believe it is it is exactly that. I, I think much as we would like to see the world change, it has to begin with us. Yes. And and it has to be in the form of loving service that we can give to society um, and enable people to wake up. I believe that that is the mission. SSEHV is a means of induction of people into waking up into a higher level of consciousness. It is not um, education in the way school systems work or education in the way that we are giving lectures. 
uh, I, I think it has to be, or we are preaching. We are preaching. Our our inter relation, our interaction with the wider people who are not in the Sai organization should not be an attempt to convert them to Swami. It should be more about their transformation, where they are, and how we can look at, in a passionate way, at the change that is necessary without, without resorting to fear-mongering. You, you know, we, we should not be um, driven by fear. We should be driven by love and hope and trust. Recognizing the danger, recognizing the danger that we are going towards, we have to be full of hope. Swami said that he'll come in, in the third incarnation. And, and I think that just the fact that he's taking three incarnations means that we are really a way off. <laughs> you know, it's not a single incarnation, it's over 200 years that he's going to come, right? And, and that means that we really, uh, we are heading in north when we should be going south. <laughs> yes, very, very well said. But, you know, they said the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Yeah. With yeah. every step, we are nearing closer to the goal. When each individual's, each one of us change, it is one less and one more transformation taking place. And I remember one of the scientists saying it only requires 13% of the world population to change to effect world transformation. So there you go, the power of quality over quantity. Isn't that called uh, creative um, um, terminology for that? Yes, yes, it is. Um, anyway, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, Dr. Pal Dal and Sister Tessin, the Sri Satyasai Global Council West Indies expresses gratitude and appreciation to both of you all for taking the time to share your personal journey, your perspective based on Swami's teachings, how we can create a better society. May Bhagwan Sri Satya Sai Baba continue to bless and guide both of you all. May you continue to be loving instruments in His divine mission. Jai Sai Ram. Thank you very much for allowing us this opportunity to be part of your family in the West Indies. And we are very privileged to be able to share our views. And we hope that, you know, this will be of and um, not just one off that we will have interactions and loving exchanges for some time to come. Mm. Thank yes. you very much. Thank you. Thank you.